Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I'm Louise Palenker. As we stroll along the Media Path, Louise and I pick and choose items to put in our reusable, environmentally friendly shopping bags. Items that we think you'll find interesting and compelling from all areas of entertainment. We do that, and we do this. This week, we talked to an enormously talented guest from the world of music, Cheryl Benteen, who spent most of her career with the iconic vocal group Manhattan Transfer. She's had a great solo career. We'll talk about her solo albums, and we'll talk about her latest project, which is helping many people have a quality of life, her podcast, dealing with those in various stages of recovering from cancer. Can't wait to talk to Cheryl. She'll be right with us in a second. Wheezy, what do you have for us? Well, Fritzy, this week I would like to recommend an episode of Radio Lab and More Perfect. This one specific episode is called Mr. Graham and the Reasonable Man. I listened to this over a year ago, and it, it resonates with me, and I think of it often, and I think it's something that everybody should partake of. Uh, in conversations about police abuse and misconduct, we've been often hearing the term qualified immunity. And in this episode, you get a quick education into the origins and the meaning of this concept. On a fall afternoon in 1984, DeThorne Graham, a diabetic, ran into a convenience store for a bottle of orange juice to help him balance his sugar with his insulin. When the line was too long, he ran back out of the store, jumped into his buddy's car, and this behavior seemed suspicious to a nearby cop who pulled them over. Unable to get orange juice into his system, DeThorne's behavior became increasingly odd. He was stumbling around the car. The cops handcuffed him and threw him face first into the curb. DeThorne took his case to a lawyer, and it worked its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, who in 1989 ruled that an objective reasonableness standard should apply to a civilian's claim that law enforcement officials used excessive force in the course of making an arrest, investigatory stop, or other seizure of his or her person. It's legal. I can't speak legal that fluently, Fritz. (laughs) This seems like a win for those seeking reasonable police behavior, but interpretation of the ruling has been twisted over time to mean that if at any moment in the arrest a cop feels threatened, he or she can use force. This is what we know now as qualified immunity. In the wake of the George Floyd ruling, it's an excellent time to learn more about the genesis and the initial intention of the concept. Look for Mr. Graham and the Reasonable Man from Radiolab and More Perfect. I, I think you've turned a couple of people on to Radiolab because you've discussed it before. And the my only exposure to it is public radio, okay. is, uh, KPCC in right. Pasadena. But is there another place they can get it? Can- it's a podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's there uh, at your demand. Whenever oh. you click or tap, really you can you can access it. Well, my first item is something I've talked about before, but I can't help it. It's the final season of Bosch on Prime Video. And here's the deal about Bosch. I was way too ADD to binge watch anything until I was turned on to Bosch. Wow. And then after I burst through that barrier, I did it with the crown, and now I'm uncontrollable. But, <laughs> but Bosch is a show I love, and they just posted their seventh and final season. It's Prime's longest-running series, and for the three and two-thirds people who don't know who Bosch is, he's a creation of writer Michael Conley. It's based on Conley's character, Hieronymus Bosch, called Harry. He's a disgruntled Hollywood detective. And part of the fun of this show is seeing every episode, including great location shooting, all around Southern California. You'll recognize most of the streets. It's kind of cool. This season gets really juicy. 
Harry's partner, Jay Edgar, hits some emotional speed bumps, and he's usually the staid sort of linear guy, and so you don't expect that from him. They come up against street gangs and Mexican drug cartels. They even have an arc with a character very similar to Michael Milken. You remember him as the junk bond king who went afoul of Wall Street regulations and did time in a... Um, golf course prison. Really a great send-off for the series. For Bosch fans, Harry isn't retiring. This is a spin-off. It's in production already. It's going to be not on Prime, but on IMDV, which is kind of odd. But I guess they're trying to drive viewership over there since they don't have any original programming. Harry becomes a state-licensed private detective, and there are one or two characters from the old Bosch that will go there as well. I love the series. Wow. That sounds extremely exciting. Mm -hmm. I will... I will look for all of that. Mm-hmm. Very good recommendation, Fritz. And the spinoff is a hot tip. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching a show on Netflix. It's a limited series called This Is Pop. I, I am too. Yes. Okay. I didn't know you were watching it. Um, yeah, I can't wait to hear what you think yeah, about it. I'm lapping it up. Uh, this is a uh, Netflix series which sets out to uncover the real stories behind your favorite pop genres, songs, and artists. The topics covered in each episode are unique and intriguing. They include T-Pain and Auto-Tune. The history of music festivals, the disproportionate influence of Swedes on American pop music, and <laughs> and the boys to men effect, which studies how in the tradition of many great black artists, the sound and style of boys to men was quickly appropriated by white artists who then met with even bigger success. For example... Boy band producer Lou Pearlman actually placed an ad in trade publications which read, looking for boys to men vocals with new kids on the block look. What could be more blatant? Thinly veiled racism there. (laughs) Which brings me to Lou Pearlman, the Lou Pearlman doc on YouTube, which is a thing of glory. Okay. This is produced by Lance Bass. The film explores the crazy career and lunatic legacy of record producer and convicted criminal Lou Pearlman. He's a con man who managed to fill his giant mansion with cute, young, singing, dancing boys. He drove them to stratospheric success while maintaining control of them and of their money. Pearlman winds up, spoiler alert, dying in prison. <laughs> but I love, are you finished with this? this um, I think that has to be a closing sentence. That was fantastic. And I love the series, but quite seriously, the number of people who were influenced by boys to men, including Justin Timberlake right. and all these people that had huge... Um, uh, careers. Also, you uh, you you suggested something that I want to talk to Cheryl about, but not right away, which is auto tune and the electronic effect on you know the purity of the vocal. She stuff. is not in need of said plugin. No, no. <laughs> All right. Well, I got one for you here. It's Willie Nelson's Letters to America. I love Willie Nelson. It, it's an Amazon uh, book. I'm a huge Willie fan. Yeah, But full disclosure, what drew me to this book more quickly than it might otherwise have done is that it was written by a friend of mine, Turk Pipkin. He's not a close friend anymore. We did comedy together 30, 25 years ago. He's a comic, a magician, and a juggler. He wrote episodes of Night Court for Harry Anderson, went on to have other many noble pursuits. He's a good friend of Willie's. Letters to America is intimate thoughts and stories about a whole range of topics by Willie. It's exactly what you'd expect from one of America's great songwriters, one of the great writers of songs that are immensely sensitive, and he is the same in these essays. He offers thoughts on Americans, past, present, and future. He talks about his heroes, including some of our founding fathers. 
and, and they, at the end of the book, published some lyrics from some of his songs, like Let Me Be a Man, Family Bible, Summer of Roses, Me and Paul, and Yesterday's Wine. The book will make you smile, make you think, if you love Willie, you'll love him even more. It's really wonderful. That's really cool. I'm reading his autobiography right now, and when I'm done with that, I'll read what you're Thank recommending. You. Fritz, let's bring our guest into the conversation. Oh, let's do it. Yeah. We are so happy to welcome Cheryl Benteen. Uh, talented in so many ways, she spent most of her career as a vocalist for Manhattan Transfer, this iconic vocal group. They together won 10 Grammy Awards. Uh, she's done some wonderful solo products and, uh, projects, including uh, Something Cool in 1992, where she performed traditional music and jazz standards. She did Dreaming of Mr. Porter. Love that. It's a tribute to Cole Porter, and she released that in 2000. She narrated an audio book called Little Girl Blue, which is the Karen Carpenter story, and she worked with Michael Feinstein with Songbook Academy. And most recently... She's been hosting a podcast called I Sing the Body, Conversations with Cheryl Benteen, which concentrates on people who are in various stages of recovery from cancer, which she is herself. Cheryl, we're so happy to have you here today. Hello from the warm desert. Oh, hi. Hi, Louise. Hi, Fritz. Nice to be here. So we're going to open by introducing people to a little bit of your sound. I want to play just a little bit of the song Trickle Trickle, which, you know, I'm a big fan of the doo-wop stuff, but I just wanted to kind of open with this. Have you got that, Franny? So Cheryl, we have really good news for you. We're in the presence of an actual weatherman who can at long last answer the age-old question, tell me just when this rain will stop. <laughs> and since I retired, I've had to relinquish my license. So I tell her what I tell everybody else, look on your phone. And you'll <laughs> learn everything. <laughs> anyway. Oh, oh man, that I'd sounds so good. You, that's that, that, that sounds <laughs> so good. Isn't that just the best? Oh my god! And and the transfer does acapella vocalese. What is vocalese? Ah uh, yes. Well, Lambert Hendricks and Ross, if you recall, a trio in uh, the mid '60s. They kind of uh, were the starting point, featuring, of course, John Hendricks lyrics. Of vocalese. Well, what he would do is take a jazz instrumental piece, whether it's Miles Davis or Clifford Brown or uh, even um, Dave Brubeck, and put lyrics to it. So it turned it into a song that you could sing, which is pretty, uh, it's challenging and it's so exciting. Like we'll do an ensemble part of like Corner Pocket, which is a Count Basie piece and just sing those horn parts with a story. And then when the solo comes around, <laughs> that's when it gets real uh, interesting. Then one of us, whoever is appropriate for that solo and that instrument, will continue the story. Um, and some of the solos are pretty intense. So it's it's a wonderful style of yeah, music. Yeah, and you give this song a second life. We had a guest on here who started uh, Friends of Distinction, who did that with... Was it Grazing in the Grass, or what song did he put lyrics to that gave it a second life? It was a it was a Ramsey Lewis instrumental song. 
Help I me. I can't remember. Oh, okay. God almighty. <laughs> Not the in crowd. No. 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 It, close, close, close. Uh, it, it, but, but it was one like that, and he gave it, you know, another five or ten years of life beyond its original popularity. Exactly. Which is it was cool. grazing in the grass. I, yeah. I, I just, I don't have that at the tip of my head. But what, I, what I'm wondering is like a lot of those, those, those jazz riffs were improvised. Do you guys just memorize what was on the record and capture that and stick to that? Or when you're on stage, do you sometimes kind of do a little bit, uh, have a little bit of fun with it? Well, no, the rule is, it's a really good question. The rule is just stick with the solo, mm -hmm. you know, and because they're so uh, intricate and difficult, it's always challenging. So it doesn't really get boring ever, you know, and our, our harmonies are always, always fresh because you never know how it's going to sound. That's, that's the love of, you know, four part harmony. Oh, you just God. never know. And yeah, it's that that record, by the way, Vocalese <laughs> turned us around. We got uh, 12, 12 Grammy nominations for that. And uh, it was it was it changed us. It changed our careers. And the record company, I can say this on the side because <laughs> they didn't want to do it. They said, no, 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 no one's going to listen to that. No one. No, no. And Tim Hauser, God love him, you know, our, the founder of our group, mm -hmm. he just went in there day after day, fighting and fighting and fighting until they finally said, okay, go ahead. And it turned out to be probably the most memorable and my favorite record of our careers. Wow. You know? Hey, speaking of Tim Hauser, uh, um, uh, let's just do a, a, a broad reflection on the nearly 50-year career of Manhattan Transfer. Talk about how it got started. Tim was the founding member, am I right? Exactly. And exactly. then, and just just generally walk us through. And then there are two manifestations of the transfer. To you're smiling. Is that a bad idea? Is it going to take too no, long? Oh, no, okay. it's funny because I wasn't there, but I've heard the story so many times. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they started in '72. Uh, Tim was driving a cab in New York City and uh, was a musician on the side, and picked up a fair who was Laurel Massey, who was um, oh, wow. who I replaced yeah. in 1979. Mm -hmm. And she, a singer, and they started talking about music, and he, he was talking about how he wanted to start a vocal group. And they went, stopped and had coffee and then ended up going to a party where Janice was because Laurel's <laughs> boyfriend was in the pit band of Greece. So <laughs> he also knew someone who could sing tenor and wanted to leave, you know, leave the Broadway show of Greece. Let me backtrack a minute. So Janice Siegel was at this party. Okay. She was singing with a trio. Mm -hmm. And they were there and they were all going, ho. So they started talking. I don't know if this was all in one night, but I like to like, <laughs> you know, all compartmentalize. In the cinema songs. version, it's one night. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Not the extended Netflix version. <laughs> uh, so then uh, they needed a tenor. They were going to do four-part harmony. Tim's dream was to be like the sax section of the Count Basie band. Where it's, oh, my God. That's know, so cool. Uh, you know, the four parts which were two women and two men, which really hadn't been covered a lot in the past. There were a lot of men groups and, of course, the girl groups. So they got a hold of Alan Paul, who wanted to, uh, to do something new, you know, was in love with vocal harmonies and that whole era of music. So there you go. They started, they started uh, writing out vocal arrangements. Janice just did it by scratch. She didn't know, just by their ears. And they sat around and learned uh, four or five tunes, and they went to like Trudy Heller's and uh, what other, you know, the, the clubs in New York, and that's all they knew. So they would do the five or so tunes, 
and then take a break and then do them over and then take a break. <laughs> and in the meantime, they were gaining a huge like underground audience yeah. because they came yeah. out, they weren't dressed in, in tails and, you know, in gowns yet. They were dressed crazy. Like, um, I think Janice was wearing a diaper. Uh, you know, they were wow. very, very, very abstract at that point. And the guys would wear makeup. And then they'd sing these 40s tunes with this beautiful harmony. So, so it was like a little bit performance art, a oh, little yeah. bit, you know, a lot vocal harmony. And you exactly. were given one of their albums when you were in a group that you were in, correct? Ah, you know everything. Well, it's on yeah. Wikipedia, Cheryl. <laughs> I don't like that to good. look at that stuff because I don't know what it's going to say about it. It's all me. good. It's all good. Oh, I can't. No, so, yeah, I was in a swing band out of Seattle called the New Deal Rhythm Band. And we kind of were along the same lines. We were kind of a, a funky, crazy group of musicians. I was the front girl, and we sang in the clubs, you know, up in Seattle, the tavern, uh, you know, uh, and all down the coast in San Francisco. And my boyfriend was the trombone player, and one day he handed me the first album of the Manhattan Transfer, and he said, you've got to listen to this. It'll blow your mind. That is and some foreshadowing. I know. Oh, there's too many like coincidences. We don't have time. Okay. <laughs> I love when that. When I heard I... this, I just went, oh my God, this is, this is me. This is, I love this. I'm crazy about this. These people are insane. I've, I've never heard about this because they were relating to a younger audience. Yeah. Be, because they were young. So mm -hmm. you're, you're, you know, pulled in by the fabulous songs and then these crazy different looking people, these four very different personalities, and then the fantastic music. So that was my introduction to them. And, and I, I, as a baby boomer, and uh, one, one of my passions is doo-wop. I'm from Philadelphia, and that was, you know, mother's milk in Philly. Uh, but but, but you, had, you had an attraction that was very similar to the early doo-wop, which was uh, uh, particularly the acapella stuff. Every voice sounded like a different instrument, and that was the start of doo-wop. So that's you can hear it on Trickle Trickle. It's just like the, yeah. the bass is a bass drum, and the yeah. And if you go back to the Mills Brothers, they used to do that. Yeah. Four, four oh. boys and a guitar. Yeah, they really did it. They became instruments. We have one song where we really do uh, sound like instruments. We I have a solo in a uh, a song, a Miles Davis piece, Herbie Hancock actually called Cantaloupe Island, and I have the solo in there, and you have to become that sound. We do that a lot, you know, within mm -hmm. within songs and sound like instruments, but they were the, you know, they were the kings, the Mills Brothers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Amazing. When you listen to them, you cannot believe that they can, that that comes out of their voice. Yeah, yeah and, and you can't, and you can't believe that that's the sound they decided to create, you know, like yeah. maybe what inspired yeah. people in the 20s was, well... We don't have any musical instruments, but yeah. I like some of what I'm hearing on the radio. How can we make that sound? And you just, out of inspiration, I mean, we don't know the music that people were making a thousand years ago, but you have to imagine that they were being super creative. It just isn't recorded, so we don't have a record of it. Exactly. So exactly. tell us about the Dixieland band that you traveled with. Your dad was in a Dixieland band. Yeah, I well, we didn't that. travel. I went as far as my house to the Elks Club. I oh, I see. <laughs> But that was interesting. Um, well, in high school, let's back up a hair. I was um, in the musicals. I wanted to be a, you know, an actress who mm -hmm. sang, mm -hmm. not a singer who acted. I thought I'd be a, an actress. Barbara Streisand, when I saw Funny Girl, I just went, I want to do that. 
you know, not knowing what, mm-hmm. what a large undertaking that would be to become Barbara Streisand. So I kind of put that aside. And uh, my mother saw me in a musical in, in uh, at high school. She didn't know I could sing. I was like a closet singer where really? I wouldn't let anybody listen to me. I would just go out in the back room and sing to records, mostly Streisand. And she said, you can sing. Why don't you go and sing with your dad's band? Aww. So um, I was like, 14 and uh so i did i'd go out on friday and saturday nights and sing with the uh he had a dance band he was a clarinet player it was his band clarinet sax flute and that's how i you know those were my early uh learning days of of, i mean new deal rhythm band was of course after that but this is how i got a start in singing in front of people and and enjoying it i didn't think there was anything I thought everyone could do this. So that's how naive and weird I was. Well, so you I knew started, that you were you were singing probably standards yeah, and your were, friends were listening to pop music. So you must have known that not everybody's dad is a band leader. I mean, on some yeah. level, you must have known that my musical tastes run deep and they yeah. don't they don't they're not limited to what's being played on top 40 radio. Exactly. I didn't really listen to it that much. I like the Beatles. And that's kind of the beginning and the end of it. Okay. I didn't really, you know, Sergio Mendes, Brazil 66. I just, I went that direction from, from that age on. So yeah, you're right. And the transfer did Brazilian music too and popularized that in their yeah. canon. Yeah, we were sitting in a living room once at Tim's house and this is how those projects used to happen. Mm-hmm. They just would happen. We were sitting there talking and all of a sudden we realized all four of us were separately listening to Brazilian music. And we went, whoa, <laughs> well, I think we should probably do a record then. So that was a real, real fun project. We went to Brazil. We sat around the piano, Tom Jobim's piano, uh, and sang and, and met all the, the musicians and composers that we later did uh, their music with English lyrics. So um, that was wonderful, too. That was a great So. Using that as an example, was it always a community contribution setup, or was there one person who was doing the arranging and the picking? Well, it was always all four of us deciding, and sometimes that would become a little bit difficult. <laughs> one would really have to campaign if he really believed in the song, and eventually we all trusted each other and yeah, and sang and chose the music together. Janice has done a majority of the vocal arrangements. Alan's done quite a few. I've done a couple. I did one with Bobby McFerrin on vocalese that won us a Grammy. Oh, my gosh. So I, I kind of thought I'd stop there. I got lucky. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> I think I'll stop while I'm ahead. And then we, we do farm out arrangements occasionally if it's a real special piece of music. So, so you started with a transfer in 79. You replaced Laura Massé, correct? How did that happen? Was it an audition? Did people understand your reputation beforehand, or how did you get the job? Well, I was lucky. I had a manager from uh, when I came down from Seattle and left the New Deal Rhythm Band, and her name was Linda Friedman, and she you know, was grooming me. I took dance lessons, singing lessons, blah, blah, blah. We went out and heard music, and I did uh, what they called Hoot Night at the Troubadour. I was doing all these little clubs, and... She knew the group's manager, Brian Avnet, and also their agent. I think it was uh, William Morris at the time. And they were looking for, you know, a fourth member, a soprano. But they were looking quietly around. You know, they were asking each other and their friends. I mean, you know, colleagues. 
And they asked Linda, and she said, yeah, yeah, I know somebody who could probably, you know, be good for this. So I auditioned. You know, they didn't know me from anybody. And uh, I went to Janice's house. She lived next to the Hollywood Bowl on, I forget the name of the street, right up next to it. Walked in their house, and uh, they asked me to do two songs, get have two songs ready, because the soprano was a melody, so, and I knew their music. I knew all their songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I went in and sang, and they said, they told me, they said, after about eight bars singing along in harmony, they looked at each other, and I was like the seventh or eighth person, I think, to uh, audition. And and they looked at each other, and they kind of nodded. It's like, that was the sound. Wow. You know, it's, it's tricky. you got to get a sound that... that where the voices just ring wow. together. It's a chord. You're making chords. So tell me yeah. about the first pinch me moment where you're on stage with the Manhattan Transfer. <laughs> uh, we went straight to Europe after we. I learned all the back material, and then I learned all the music for the for the Extensions album. We went in the studio. We did Birdland, the first song. I'm like, ah. <laughs> it was it was they it was like a punch in the face like over and over and over but a good punch yeah uh so then we went to europe we did a show in amsterdam that was televised i think in like 10 countries or something crazy and uh that was my first show that was my first show and it was wow. insane it was insane so i remember that that's so what crazy. what's the personality mix like because that you know those are also harmonies you know, you're out on the road with people and everybody's kind of vibrating. And what was it like to be the new kid or, you know, or were there was there a moment of honeymoon and then a moment of like, you put this here and it doesn't go there. And, you know, how how does that work on the road when everybody's kind of can be cranky? And, you know, what are the things that people get irritated about? Oh, boy. It could be something big. It could be something really small. Mm -hmm. And I, <laughs> but it's an interesting question because not only are we these four singers, you know, we're dear friends. Uh, my daughter is best friends to this day with Tim's daughter. Aww. They're the same age. Wow. Uh, also with Janice's son. They all were about the same age coming up in the group. So we're family in that sense. But mm -hmm. we're also, you know, we're business partners. We're, we, we're music partners. We're friends. We're family. And all that combined can get can get very uh, <laughs> complicated sometimes. Mm -hmm. That's a good word. <laughs> so when we do push each other's buttons, at this point, we know what those buttons are. Mm -hmm. So we kind, of <laughs> we kind of stay clear of that and just let the music lead the way. Yeah. Because that's what we're there for. Yeah, you know? because it's like, it's hard enough to have one marriage, but <laughs> to be in a group and now coming up on your 50th anniversary, that means, and you since 1979, that means... You have to navigate all every every person in the group has a unique relationship with every other person. So there's all these crisscrossing relationships that are one on one, one on one, one on one, and you have to, you know, you just have to know how to how to navigate, how to choose your words in a in a way that sounds uh, kind. And even yeah. when you what you're what you're about to deliver is maybe something where you feel extremely annoyed, <laughs> but you still have to say, you know, you have yeah. to find a kind way to, to, that would be a productive way to deliver this, this message yeah. and be Are heard. you sure you haven't been in the studio with us or, <laughs> or in rehearsals? 
I can't She's been in enough studios on her own with stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I had know a, you were there. I know you were at our rehearsals. Yeah, but, exactly. But I think you, we, we're not all in Manhattan Transfer. We're not all in the studio with you guys, but we all have similar types of friendships or business endeavors where that kind of thing is essential. And you can hit a point where it almost might fall off a cliff, but you, everyone has to love it enough to not let that happen. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And she made a documentary about that, about the Cowsill family called Family Band. Right now it's on Netflix or Prime. No, it's on Prime. And, uh, um, and it was the same thing with them. Each had to juggle a separate personality and you got to observe it from a distance. But they were siblings, so they really had to find a way yeah. to find a way. But you, you guys do it by, um, by choice and that's, that's beautiful. That's something beautiful to treasure. Yeah. Oh, did you take I, your Did you take your children on the road with you? It sounds like they spent a little time with you guys. <laughs> yes. How do we do that? You ask. Well, you know, uh, both Janice and I had our our children oh, about a year apart, so I was watching her and how she did it. We had to have nannies with us because mm-hmm. we're going on stage. Yeah. We nurse our babies before the show. Wow. Unbelievable. Go on stage and then. Uh, get up twice a night with the babies and then get on a plane or whatever the next morning and do a show. I, to this moment, I don't know. I don't know how I did it. I don't, you know, you go on, on mommy adrenaline, you know, I just, so yeah, she had to be with me. And then finally, uh, you know, when she started preschool, it was time to be home and learn how to be a real little person and mm-hmm. not, not just a, a road puppy. You Have know, you watched so. the, the pink documentary? I can't yes. Remember. Did you relate I to that? I don't know how. Yeah. How? She's how? really a devoted mom. I came away with a lot of respect for her and her husband, who Amazing. completely uh, uh, subsumed his own career for her and played a great dad great while she's on the road. It was really interesting. That's right. A incredible show. I mean, that that is magical what she does. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, She's got a lot of strength. I don't think I'm that strong. I mean, I, it was, you know, we travel just as much. We don't play to billions of people in a concert. You're, we don't hang you're from rarely, You're rarely upside down. Oh. It's extremely. <laughs> Singing upside down. Yeah, she's amazing. She's amazing. But well, what, what country other than the United States did you find the greatest response where Manhattan Transfer resonated the Oh, boy. Um, well, I don't want to be like, you know, I, I, you know, it's different everywhere. We Japan is is huge for us. Uh, we got most of our gold records from there. We've done television commercials there. Uh, they love us, love us, love us. They love know, vocals. That's a big vocal. Yes. They love jazz fan country. You know, they like American they love- jazz. Okay. Yeah, I taught a lot of um, Japanese students. I did a whole workshop there. I did one online. And they just want to sing our standards. And it's challenging, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. you know, to, to coach them with that because they're, you know, they didn't grow up with that, but they want it so bad. Mm-hmm. So that's lovely. And then Europe is wonderful. Europe is wonderful. Australia is wonderful. I can't really, mm-hmm. you know, pinpoint one place. We're really lucky. We've had fans that have held out for as long as we've been around, you know, and they're my age now, you know, what's, and then their kids and then their kids. Oh, yeah. What style of music, because you guys are known for your eclectic uh, 
arsenal of of or beautiful uh, repertoire of songs that you that you can perform. What style is the most difficult? Maybe not just to sing, but to 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 blend. To blend. Um, for me, I think you'd get a different answer from the re- from maybe others. But for me, the pop music is is challenging for me because I'm I'm not a pop singer. You know, Janice is a pop singer. Alan can you know obviously. But Trist and I are more from a different school of music, so I find that challenging because the beats are on all four. Mm-hmm. You know, jazz and R&B is on two and four. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, it's a different feel. You know, mm-hmm. you have to emphasize every word in pop music. And it's very often three-part harmony with a vocalist, you know, in the lead. So it's not, you know... It, it's harder, I think, to get a blend and sound like us sometimes ah. with that kind, of, that style of music. And you're always chasing that. You're always wanting your your unique sound, your your brand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that just kind of happens, mm-hmm. you know. Especially early on, we didn't, you know. <laughs> producers thought we were nuts. We sang around one mic together up until I want to say maybe after Brazil. I mean, we'd, we'd sing around one mic, and that was our organic sound. You know, voices would kind of fade in and out. If somebody hits a wrong note, we have to do the entire song again. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we did it the hard way, and uh, we don't do it that way anymore. Mm. We're older. Our voices have changed. We have a new bass in the band, so the bass now can sing on his own and create the foundation. Can you talk about how that felt to, to lose Tim? Oh, oh, it was, it was devastating. You know, we, he had been ill for a long time, you know, and insisted on going out on the road. He was the heart and soul of the group, you know, and still is, you know, we still talk to him once in a while and he's up there just giving us hell. Yeah. You know, (laughs) he's doing that all the time. I can hear him, but he was the soul. He was the glue that held this together he um, he would always be there for every single one of us. Was very concerned about like each of us being represented on a record, mm. or uh, he would pick a lot of the material. He he knew what this. He knew what he wanted, and he'd fight for it. And he was crazy too. I mean, he was <laughs> really you know he had this genius for music, and he knew every record, B A side, B side, you know, especially doo wop. That was his thing, but also jazz. And he just, uh, you know, he championed me when I came in. He was determined to find my place in the group. Mm. You know, he goes, June Christie, you know, you're a cool singer. Sing something cool. Sing that style. And then he'd find me another song and then another song. And uh, he did that with all of us. So he's sorely missed. We The first show in uh, Japan, I mean, these young ladies who love us, they were sitting there weeping. Oh, a lot of people oh. were. Yeah. You know, yeah, crying. You guys too, I bet. We came out, yeah. So and they still love us, though. Of course. Well, he started the Manhattan Transfer, and I think for modern audiences, say, baby boomers forward, he your group is what attracted attention and grew new fans to vocal harmonies, and you end up with the pentatonics, which are now, which my daughter loves, and I think that that sort of opened the gate for all of what succeeded you guys, and you were the first. Yes, thank you. I'll take that, because I agree. You know, pentatonics is, 
they're superstars. You know, we know them. We went to a show. I couldn't believe the enormity of their uh, their show and their voices. They're all pretty much, uh, you know, uh, classically trained. They're mm -hmm. very, very good at what they do. Um, I'd agree with that. I think it's great. I mean, even those Pitch Perfect, those movies that came out, um, Glee, you know, all of these shows, all of this stuff that we've been doing since, you know, forever. Yeah, so and even bands like, like what you were talking about, Boys to Men, four-part harmony, oh, yeah. probably yeah. could be traced back to or, the appeal of Manhattan Transfer. Yeah, uh -huh. sure, absolutely. And And what do some young people say to you, or people that are even now doing well, in music, when they come up to you and they're, and they're meeting you, what, what are some of the, th the things that they say to you and that they're eager to, to let you know? Uh, well, they couldn't be sweeter. I mean, there's so many, like, college vocal groups that we come upon, you know, that will come backstage and sing for us, and they're just like, <gasps> and they'll <laughs> sing our songs. And uh, so that's really, that's, it's so rewarding. It's so, it's so touching that that happens. But they just go, you know, you introduced me to jazz or, or, you know, we got married and that's the song we play. You know, mm. there's so many wonderful things that have happened on that level where they'll we'll get a letter and they'll go, you know, I I lost my, my father and this is the song that he loved. And it's so we somehow have touched a really deep level with people that is just it's it's so gratifying and it's so moving. Uh, but young singers, again, they'll say vocalese turned me on to. Miles Davis or to the jazz in, in general. And um, it's wonderful. And pentatonics, they, you know, they're their own thing. But they, uh, we did one recording with them, actually. One oh, of really? their Christmas records yeah. we were on. Jacob Collier, I don't know if you know who, he did the vocal arrangement. He's a young wunderkind. Wow, that's powerful with you guys and them together. That must I know, it was great. It was cool. great. It's on, uh, we did White Christmas, I think, and it's on. Yeah, and it's on one of their many Christmas records. Back so. when you were 13 years old and just starting to sing with your father's Dixieland band, who were your musical heroes? Who did you look up to and want to em emulate? Well, my dad, the clarinet player. I know it sounds weird, but that's how I learned to swing music. That's how I learned tone. That's how I learned uh, phrasing. You know, it's just being around him. And then there was anything from Judy Garland to... Uh, to Ella, to Tony Bennett, to Frank Sinatra. You know, I think I listened to everybody after that. But early on, you know, I just, I really didn't have that vocabulary. I'm a very small town. Didn't go to Broadway shows, didn't go to shows. Although my parents' first show they took me to in Seattle was uh, Peggy Lee and the Mills Brothers. What? Wow. So, I know, I got a good start, right? Oh, my gosh. Well, Weezy's family it. is personal friends with the Mills Brothers, and so she goes way back on a family <laughs> level with the Mills Brothers. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. wonderful. My mom actually interviewed them when she was in high school and stayed friends with them. So throughout my childhood, you remember during the kind of nightclub days when you would do a two-week engagement in a town? Yes. So New we deal. were in Buffalo, New York. It's summertime, and the Mills Brothers are coming over for dinner every night because we were their Buffalo family. <laughs> I think they had a family in every port, you know, just so they could feel normal and not have to eat hotel oh. food. And and so that was just kind of magical. Wonderful. You know? Wonderful. I think that was a stepping stone for me. You know, the universe telling me, okay, Cheryl, you got, you're going to sing harmony and you're going to sound like Peggy Lee. <laughs> so, well, I was... 
I was always that kid that wanted to sing the harmony on the record, and then oh. I wanted to make up my own harmony and find ah. one that wasn't in the arrangement. And was that you? No. No, I was never a harmony singer. I was, you know, solo. I always sang the melody. But that's nice. That's interesting. You'd make up your own part. But I think mm-hmm. that came from me being, you know, influenced so young by the Mills Brothers, you know, yeah. having them in, in our home and just sitting with your, your, your ear against the speaker because you want to hear every every part in the arrangement, not just the vocals, but in the in, in the instruments. You wanted to know, you know, is that an alto sax or a tenor? Sax? You know, like you, yes, you just yeah. want to be, you want to just peel it back and be able to see, you know. So if I if you went to a concert, you'd get want to get as close as possible so you could see what everyone was playing and you know and how yeah. it all came together. Exactly, exactly. Oh, that's great. What about yeah. contemporary artists? Who do you like these days? Uh oh, uh oh. I was afraid you were going to ask. <laughs> no, that's okay. I would be the same way. I, 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 the one well, with purple I, hair. You know, I was watching the BET Awards the other night. Scared me to death. So I turned. Oh, yeah. to... That's right. Well, that's a whole different it, music. You know, it's a different paradigm. Music is not what it was when I grew up at all. I do have, you know, now I sound like an old biddy, but I do have favorite singers. Pink is one of them. Um, you know, Katie Lang. I yeah. mean, this is still not real current. Um, gosh, who else? Uh, Kelly Clarkson, I think, is amazing. Yeah, I like is. Uh, Vince Gill. Oh, I, I love him. his voice. Right? Yeah. Um, oh, God. It caught me way off guard. No, no, no those good. are good answers. You're doing great. Well, it's kind of across the board. I've got yeah. uh, Maria Callas on my turntable okay. right now. So <laughs> it's all over the I love book. the part where you have a turntable. Oh, yeah. I've got the works here. Yeah. Yeah. I want to get a jukebox and put all the singles from my childhood that I still have in the jukebox. Yes. Tim used to have jukeboxes. He had about three or four. Did he? You know, one played 78s. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, that's super cool. Well, talk about what it was like to now be on the side of the the auditioning side of things where you're seeing people that are going to now sing Tim's part in, in your group. Um, what was that like? Did everybody agree on what you were seeing and hearing? Does the person's personality factor in when you have the conversations afterwards about who would be a good fit? Well, it happened again, like kind of magically. We didn't audition. We mm. didn't have time. Tim got sick on the road and we needed somebody the next night. Oh my basically. goodness. And I called Claude McKnight from Take Six. I said, we need a bass. And he goes, well, here's two two guys. One is Tris Curlis. And I went, oh, I know who he is. Who's this? He's a sound man, too. He did sound for Pentatonix. Okay. He did sound for me a couple times at Vitello's. Uh, so I called him. You know, the group said, please call him. We need somebody. I called him, and I explained what was going on. And he said, yeah, of course I'll do it. So little did I know, he had a vocal group called Impact. Okay. And Trist knew a lot of our music, you know, and has great ears. And he literally met us on the road and we threw him on stage and he did an amazing job. Wow. I mean, and he's a real bass. Tim was not a bass. He was a tenor, mm. you know, that was forced to sing bass lines, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he had a different personality because of that. So Trist is, you know, Amazing. He's amazing. He does beatbox. He does things that we were never, that was never in our repertoire. So he's bringing us 
you know, a few levels up, you know, and the blend is different, but it was different when I came in too, sure. when I replaced Laurel. So you just kind of go with it and, and the personalities get along really well. And that's really almost, that's almost 50 or more percent of the success of us, you know. Absolutely. So, so what yeah. is on the horizon for the transfer? You're coming up on your 50 year anniversary and we're, and now we're coming out of a pandemic. So what, what have you guys got planned for us? Well, <laughs> we haven't sung for a year and a half together. It's kind of nuts, really. First thing we're doing is going in the studio, uh, end of July, early August. We're doing a symphony project, uh, a German WDR symphony orchestra from Germany. Wow. And they hired us to do this, basically. They came to us. So all the symphony tracks are done. We, we uh, had new charts done for for the vocals and obviously for the symphony and uh we're going in to sing you know in the studio we'll see what happens with songs that we've already done like i said that didn't have symphony charts attached to them okay. so that'll be really interesting yeah. and then we're working on a documentary oh hopefully it will come out maybe 22 early 23 and we start touring oh and a box set uh, Concord box set with five, five CDs, five discs from un, unknown stuff that was never, never uh, put on a record to live things. And uh, so that's wonderful. A lot of stuff is coming together next year. That's fantastic. I know. We're pretty excited. Yeah. I, I want to talk about your diagnosis, Cheryl, because it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, slightly adjusted the last part of your life, but you're giving so many people, uh, hope in, in what you're doing with your podcast. First, let's talk about your diagnosis. Oh, gosh. Well, we were on the road in 2011, and uh, I started getting ill. I just didn't feel good. We were in Europe. And, of course, we're in Europe, right? And went to a doctor, and they, they gave me, like, a breathing machine. It didn't help. I was just getting weaker and weaker and weaker, and I couldn't eat. I stopped mm -hmm. eating, and <laughs> something's really wrong here. So when we got home from Europe, I'm, I'm really condensing this because yeah. you don't need detailed details. Alan Paul, my partner, said, I'm sending you to my doctor tomorrow. Something's wrong here. Mm -hmm. I'd lost over 25 pounds mm -hmm. on the road. And I was like this, hanging onto the mic stand, Aww. thinking, you know, the last thing you think is, of course, I went to the doctor that next day and got blood tests and went home. He called me when I got home that night and he goes, uh, is your daughter with you? And I said, yes. Can she drive you over to Tarzana to the emergency room? I said, uh, yeah, what's going on? He goes, well, I saw something I didn't like in your blood test. So I uh, went there. Of course, they don't tell you until, you know. Mm-hmm. And I went in that night, and the next day they took my spleen out. Oh, goodness. And, uh, yeah, it was riddled with cancer, I guess. And then I had to wait a full month for that to heal better and then uh, started chemo. Mm -hmm. You know, I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma the first time around. And I did. Uh, I was off the road for eight months, which that was the hardest part for me. <laughs> I know it sounds oh, silly, but I was like, I can't do this. I got to be on the road. We have a Christmas tour coming. That's not you know, so I stayed home, did twelve treatments of chemo, and uh, lost all my hair. Started wearing wigs. Went back out for a year with the group, 
And almost to the same month, a year later, I got sick again. Oh, boy. This time it was rougher because you could see swelling on my lymph glands all around me. I went, no, 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 no. So I went back to the doctor, and uh, this time it was Hodgkin's, which is much more severe. And, you know, it's brutal. And they uh, went to a doctor, my doctor, and he sent me to a stem cell transplant specialist at City of Hope, which I got to give them so much credit. They're an amazing place. And I got a stem cell transplant. Wow. They said, the doctor said, you don't want to go through this anymore, do you? And I said, no. <laughs> so we're going to change so, how many? Let, let, let me just put how, this in the timeline. How, how long ago was this we're talking about? Uh, started 2011. And I was clean and bill of, clean bill of health 2014. Yes. So, so when I've you get this, the stem cell, um, we're going to change how your cells are reproducing. Is that the idea? Yeah, they took mine and they put it through the through the ringer, so to speak, and okay. uh, put it back in me. You know, clean, shiny, clean cells. Okay, and awesome. uh, <laughs> I did have a scare during the pandemic, though. I had a had to get a biopsy. But I'm fine now. You're fine. Okay. Good, good, good. You You have such great energy and a great smile. It looks like you're feeling well. And all of this led to your current project, which is quite impressive. And even uh, people who are not touched by cancer directly, when you listen to your podcast, it's very hopeful. It's called I Sing the Body Conversations with Cheryl Benteen. Tell us about that. Well, that actually um, happened early on in the pandemic. I... uh, we got, you know, we got off the road, and I immediately started writing songs. I don't know what that was about, and they're still sitting somewhere in a corner. And then I thought it's something I've always wanted to do because I went to like a, a healing workshop called We Spark in Los Angeles when I was healing mm-hmm. emotionally, and I realized I had hit a wall emotionally at a certain point. This is like a year plus after I was fine, and uh, it's it's. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder, basically, for post-cancer, you know, survivors. And they don't tell you about this. You know, I had to try all these different, uh, you know, uh, I tried all different, what's the word? See, I don't have words right now. Therapy. Antidepressants. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was like, I was crazy. I'd pull over the side of the road and just sit there and cry Mm -hmm. and scream and Mm -hmm. da-da-da. I'm going, something's wrong here. So when I finally got settled into what works for me and what will keep me going and not kill people, uh, <laughs> I thought, I wonder if there's other women I can talk to. This is a mystery. This is the unspoken uh, part of cancer, surviving after it's all over. Right. You know, And when you're well, trying to like, you know, be, another, be a person again. And, but guess what? You're different. And you do see things differently, mm-hmm. and you and resentments can like you know fall into place. Uh, self self anger, self doubt. If there's not self care taking place, this is my experience. As you're as you're healing, and when you're done with cancer, if you if you don't stop and go, Cheryl, your body just went through hell. You got to thank it. You got to be nice to yourself. Instead, I just went out in the road and I just kept working, 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 working. You know, without without grieving without that's a big part of my podcast i ask all the ladies you know did you grieve your illness because that's the healing part if you can grieve and go god this is you went through so much you kind of clear clear the air for some reason 
but it's not till after I, I, you know, struggled through those steps and didn't clear it that I realized I got to talk to some women. So in talking to these women, eight different women, seven of them were singers and very good friends of mine. Mm -hmm. This is just skimming the surface of, let's see, who can I talk to? Oh, there's her, there's her, there's her. All different kinds of cancer. Two of them are still struggling, you know, in, in, the, in the struggle, in the battle. Um, and they gave all different stories of how they got through it. I said, I want to do this for women who may just be beginning chemo and think they can just walk away and like continue their lives normally like they used to be because you can't you know you've got to emotionally deal with it and you see things differently it can be subtle but i think the longer i'm i'm um you know well and clean from cancer the more i'm really appreciating that i'm here for mm. one thing or you offer some great uh, r repeating words of advice uh, in your podcast. One is we're all different, but we're all on the same road, which is kind of something you can expand out to every human being's relationship to every other human being. But for cancer survivors, it yeah. has. And another line you use that I love, you don't want to frighten, you just want to inform. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I had to keep saying that because, you know, for people who have not gone through it, you know, it really is for cancer survivors, but it's hopefully for everybody, like you were saying, that it's how to treat your friends or your loved ones or your mother or your whoever who's gone through it. They don't know what to say mm -hmm. or what to do. You know, I'd get rides to chemo. Even my daughter, you know, she was in high school when this began. She didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. She froze up. I mean, she was there for me, but what's a kid going to do when her mother's sitting there, you know, on the couch for six months so it is it is truly i'm really proud of it you know i talked to eight women i think that's enough yeah <laughs> i mean how much more can you you know so i'm looking in another direction with possibly uh healing music that that these women can sing or put online because oh, yeah. i'm realizing going through this that the music portion of their lives really played a role you know you don't have to be a musician but you but uh, a healing something healing i was playing opera in the hospital room when i was getting my uh my my new cells because i thought okay there's got to be some sort of celebratory sound you know and nobody else in the hospital was playing music so anyway i'd like to i'd like to go to that level next if i do well we ought to say uh, uh, um that it's interesting and hopeful for people who aren't even cancer folks and because it's not what you think it's going to be like a serious conversation between you and your doctor you have many laughs i loved hearing the stories between you and your friends and there's laughing and there's joking and it's not it's not down at all yeah there has to be humor involved thank you i, I appreciate that it's uh yeah there were some funny moments you know and i'm sure there are people listening going how can they laugh at that well you do mm -hmm. you know and uh that kind of helps you get through, as you both know. I mean, you're, you're lighthearted, beautiful people, so it's you need that. Yes, I think we yeah. all we all need to laugh, and even yeah. even though, and I think people laugh at things that are very inside, and you know, in this case, it may seem like to someone who's not going through this, how could you laugh? But when you're inside of it with someone else who's inside of it, and you're sharing it. 
that is what invites laughter. And then the laughter is then healing, and it's part of the healing. Did you find that people uh, um, were were eager to tell you their story because you're a sympathetic ear, or you have to pry it out of them because it seems so personal and dark? Oh, my God. These women, I had to edit. I was an editor, too. They would go on and on and on and on. They loved sharing it because I think probably hadn't talked about it maybe to anyone mm -hmm. on this level. Mm -hmm. Or to someone else who could understand fully, yeah. and it's th so cathartic yeah. to yeah. just be heard. They felt good afterwards. I learned a lot from them. So I was very, very blessed that they were they were there for me, too. You know, I just let them go. But again, there were so many stories. I had to cut them down a bit. Right. You know, it, right. it was fun. And was you great. learned how to make a podcast. And this is <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if I remember now. It's a while back. But, you know, well, I might continue that. It's yeah. In, in some form. I mean, there may be something else about which you want to do a series of yeah. shows. No, I love your idea of the healing power of music. I think that's a podcast in itself. Right, right. And I don't know if I people could contribute their music that got them through a tough time. Exactly. Well, people are struggling with all kinds of things, you know, different illnesses, even, you know, mental, you know, health issues. And so oh, yeah. we, you, music is kind of, it does sort of change your cellular balance. I notice, oh. I notice when I put it on, it changes how I'm actually feeling in that moment. So something is transforming when we listen Absolutely. to music. There's a reason why humans are attracted to these sounds that we can make. Yeah. And I, I have an example of that in a far less dramatic form than recovering from a disease. But uh, at, at, as the pandemic started, I promised myself, because of what we have been through, without being specific, the last four years in Washington, uh, I was going to tune out the news uh, because I had become addicted to all platforms of news. Uh, you know, it was like looking into the abyss and I was afraid I'd miss something. So I, I promised myself I was going to stop doing that. And I did. And I started listening. And it was so therapeutic. And until recently, when the dust settled a little bit and I went back to a little news, I, I found myself listening to Sirius XM, every channel, the Blues Channel, Motown, uh, 60s on 6, the 70s on 7, all that stuff. And it was so, it honestly, it elevated my spirits from where they had been for four years, honestly. It was very therapeutic. I believe you. I believe you. Look how lucky I am that I get to make music. But I, I'm with you 100%. I mean, I just... Uh, how old is your daughter now? She's 26. Oh, good. She's so if you go back out on the road, you don't have to nurse anybody. Oh, <laughs> she, she, she rarely she was bring her boyfriend out. And I said, honey, I'm not here to make money, not spend money. <laughs> I think it'd be interesting to have a uh, a music club, kind of like a book club, where everybody listens to the same album for the week, and then have a <gasps> podcast. That's that not a bad Cheryl idea. Cheryl hosts that's, the podcast. That's a great talks idea. Talks about how the music, if not just what you thought of it, but how it affected how you were feeling. Oh my God! You want to be my producer? Oh, that's, she's, that's her. That's her talent. We'll talk about yeah. that. As a yeah. matter of fact, I will say this: that when you guys get close to that documentary, you ought to bring every bring the whole group and come back and talk to us again. We'll help you promote it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Would love to do that. I would love, love that so that. much. I have but one that's a great idea. With it is the, okay, Cheryl. We'll talk. So I have one <laughs> question to you, and this comes to you from every fan or anyone who's ever listened to your music before. Do you actually know anyone with a dueling scar? <laughs> wow. The boy from New York City apparently has I know. One. Oh. I know. Among other attributes. 
A dueling scar. I can only think <laughs> of my sleeve scar. Boy, I don't oh, you mean do I do I do I Jenny? Yeah. That one? Oh. It's no like, way! It's the craziest oh, lyric ever. Like he's got the car, he's got a, a wallet dueling full of money, scar. and he has a dueling scar, which makes him badass. <laughs> I know, totally. <laughs> wow, good job. Because I don't know anyone with one. I just I picture him, either. like you know, in the year eighteen oh five, you know, with swordplay or something on the front lawn. <laughs> Well, oh, Cheryl, it's, it's just a delight talking with you. And uh, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom and all of your talent yeah. with us. I'm going to read our closing credits. Is but Before I do so, where can people find you online? We're going to add some links and stuff to our show notes so that people can find everything having to do with you and having to do with uh, Manhattan Transfer. Well, my website is, is under under repair right now. I don't even know if it's there. You know, you hear that a lot. Manhattan Transfer official website is up. Uh, Facebook, I'm there. I got a, a pro page. Um, let's see. And uh, I Sing the Body is is on Apple Podcasts, so mm-hmm. you can find that. You know, and my phone number is, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right over. All right. That was a treat. A treat. Thank Thank you so much, Cheryl. It was wonderful. Thank you. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our guest, Cheryl Benteen. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. But first, Fritz has more to tell you. And listen, you, if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us greatly to be more discoverable by potential new listeners if you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. You may find us Binge-worthy. Recent episodes include Gary Puckett, The Cow Sills, Keith Morris, and Henry Winkler. On and on and on. We've done 60 episodes nearly, and they're all interesting for different reasons. Thank you for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. Be safe. Great energy. Great. It's coffee.